Good morning. I'm Ryan Jacobson, and I get to be one of the pastors here at Alamo Heights United Methodist Church as well. And this morning, we are embarking, embarking on a new journey. Today, we start a new sermon series exploring the parables of the latter half of the Gospel of Luke. And if you were here last week on Thursday night or on Friday or Sunday morning, you heard Dr. Shia speak And he, last Sunday morning, introduced us to Luke, and I want to begin this morning by recalling a little bit of what he told us about the Gospel of Luke. Luke and Acts, written by the same author, were originally written as one book. You could consider them two volumes of the same book. They were likely written sometime in the late 70s or mid-80s of the first century, and they probably had an original audience in greater Antioch, But they were quickly distributed and disseminated to the believers, the followers of the way, all around the Mediterranean basin. At this point in the first century, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith were for the first time separating. And for the first time, the Christian faith had to stand on its own, apart from its Jewish mother. There was an emperor in power that had severe prejudices against both the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. And so this faith had to find a way to move forward in what was a place of great hostility. Dr. Shia sees this gospel of Luke as a response to a question that people that find themselves in that situation must ask. And as we begin to understand who we are who our God is and where it is that we belong in the world, we ask the same question. How do we mature? How do we grow from here? How do we carry this message forward to those around us? This sermon series will focus on the parables that Jesus tells along the road. In chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, we find the phrase that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Some translations say Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. It's this turning point in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus realizes that his vocation, his calling must move forward. And he sets himself with intentionality on a path to get to Jerusalem. As we read in the Gospel, though, this path does have a lot of stops along the way. There are a lot of teachings, and there are miracles, and there's parables. And there's distraction, but Jesus is always moving forward down the path. He's moving towards his destination, towards the cross in Jerusalem. But since we know that Acts is a companion volume to this, this destination of Jesus is really just a new beginning as the disciples continue to walk the same path. The parables that Jesus tells along this path are considerably varied. They have to do with things like money and possessions, leadership, self-examination, generosity, and how to live your life one day at a time, maturing, growing in the everyday acts. And so we'll begin. Today we're starting in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Specifically, specifically, we'll be exploring the parable of the rich fool. 
But before we get there, we do need to set a little bit of context. This chapter opens in an unnamed location. All we know is that Jesus has been walking down the road. He is in this chapter in the midst of a large crowd, but he's keeping his teaching and his words pretty private. He's talking to the disciples in the midst of this large crowd. And he begins his lesson by telling the disciples that they have no need to fear the Pharisees. And in this case, the Pharisees represent a leadership at large that seems to be hostile to this movement. The worst that these Pharisees can do is kill the disciples. Jesus insists you don't need to fear the man that can kill you. Instead, Jesus says that the only one worth fearing is the one that has authority to cast your soul into Gehenna. Fear that one. But understand this. That one is also the one that forgets not a single sparrow. That one is the one that has counted the hairs on your head. The only one that is worth fear is the one that cares for you so immensely that fear is not necessary. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than the sparrow. And then Jesus is suddenly interrupted. A man comes in from the crowd, comes into this circle of disciples with Jesus, and he says, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. And it's this request that prompts Jesus' telling of today's parable. Please stand as I read to you today from the 12th chapter of this Gospel of Luke. And he, Jesus, said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat. Drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, I know that if you're like me, when you read or listen to this parable, the first place that your mind goes is to the book of Ecclesiastes, right? It's pretty obvious. So there's a remez in this story. Everybody say the word remez. Remez. Good. This remez word, this is a Hebrew word that means hint. Daryl's talked about this word in one of his sermons where he used it as kind of a directional arrow that points us somewhere else. The rabbis used this idea of remez 
to help themselves learn about the scriptures. When they found a word or a phrase or a concept that occurred in more than one place in the Bible, they would look at those stories together. Let those stories shine light on each other so that they might understand things better. Some of the remezes in the Bible are pretty obvious. When we read the first chapter of the book of John, it starts in the beginning. And it's pretty obvious that we'll go back to Genesis 1 where the same story, or where the story starts with the same phrase, in the beginning. Other instances of remez are a little bit harder to dig out. But some scholars think that all of Jesus' teachings had some sort of remez to an Old Testament story, to something that you would find in the Hebrew Scriptures. And this parable does contain one of these remez. This this remez here points us to Ecclesiastes. In this parable, the rich man says to his soul, eat, drink, and be merry. And these words, you'll find, are a common refrain throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. It's written by someone who gives himself the title of the teacher. He claims to be a son of David and a king in Jerusalem, which means that many modern scholars think it could have been Solomon, but we don't know who the author was authoritatively. The book opens with a cry From this teacher. Meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And from there, the teacher gives us 12 chapters describing his many pursuits in life and what he's learned from them. And as you might guess, he finds them mostly to be meaningless he's pursued wisdom he's pursued pleasure he's pursued riches he's pursued achievements and he's even intentionally made himself play the part of the fool to see if maybe ignorance can bring bliss but he couldn't find any meaning in any of it Our parable this morning is about a man who finds himself with a bounty of riches. And he seeks to preserve it for himself, giving himself the ability to relax, to eat, to drink, and to be merry. Listen to what the teacher of Ecclesiastes has to say about such pursuits. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes upon? The sleep of a laborer is sweet. Whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance Permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take 
nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. But then comes the strange part of Ecclesiastes with what has to do with our parable today. In the verse immediately following the ones I just read to you, the teacher offers his answer to the futility that he's found in riches and possessions. This is what I found to be good, that it's beautiful for a person to eat, to drink, to find good in his work, and to be merry. It's a little bit strange that for the man in Jesus' parable, when he sets a goal of eating, drinking, and being merry, he's called a fool. And yet for another man, it is exactly these same activities that are found to be good. It turns out that there is a distinction in the details. For the teacher of Ecclesiastes, the pursuit was meaningless because the purpose of the pursuit was always only that which was being pursued. In this case, in these verses, it was money. He pursued the riches because he wanted the riches, the nice things that went along with them. In other parts, he pursued pleasure just for the sake of pleasure. He pursued wisdom just for the sake of wisdom. And he found that each of these pursuits ultimately led nowhere. He realized that when his life would be over, nothing of those things would go on with him. John Ortberg is a pastor um, in the Presbyterian Church, and he has a lot of books that, that a lot of us like a whole lot. One of his books, at the very beginning, he tells a pretty interesting story. When he was a young boy, John and his grandmother played Monopoly. And they played it a lot. Little Johnny would get his first $1,500 from the bank and he would hold on to it with a clenched fist because he didn't know what would come with the next roll of the dice. But his grandmother, she knew how to play the game. She would buy every single property that she landed on. And if she had to mortgage some of her properties to get the other one, she would do it. She was vicious. And inevitably, little Johnny would lose these games, clinching his money. And at the end of it, his grandmother would pick up the pieces and put the pieces back in the box. And she'd say to Johnny, one day, you'll learn how to play the game. And so one summer, Johnny spent every single day playing Monopoly with his friend and his neighbor, Steve. And he finally learned what his grandmother had been showing him for so long. Accumulation is the name of the game. Money, it's only the way to keep score. This race goes to the swift. Johnny began to buy everything. He showed Steve no fear and especially no mercy. Johnny learned how to become a master of the board. 
And when Johnny returned to his grandmother's home at the end of the summer, Johnny played the game with the fervor and determination that his grandmother had never seen in him before. He bought the utilities, he bought the railroads, he bought all the properties that he could, and pretty soon he had a number of monopolies. He built his houses and he built his hotels, and his grandmother was slowly losing money. She didn't have any more houses or hotels, and most of her properties were mortgaged. And finally, she rolls the dice. She moves her piece to Marvin Gardens with a hotel. And Johnny, with a shout, yells, $1,200, game over! (laughs) Johnny was elated. He's ready to bask in the glory of this victory. He's parading in front of his family the prowess he has with rental properties. He even maybe wants to say to his grandmother, one day you'll learn to play the game. But it was at this moment of exaltation that Johnny's grandmother gave him the best lesson that he could possibly learn from this game. She took all the money. She took the chance and community chess cards. She took the properties and the dice and even his little car figurine, and she put them in the box, and she said to Johnny, when the game's over, Johnny, it all goes back in the box. It belongs to somebody else, whoever plays the game next. If it all goes back in the box, where then is the meaning and purpose found? Why even play the game? For the teacher, meaning in life is found in fearing God. And remember, we fear the one that cares so much that fear is not necessary. And keeping his commandments. And these commandments are largely about relationship. Relationship to the land, relationship to the community around you, and relationship with the divine. You play the game because you want the time with grandma. You live life because it's a gift from God and because of the amazing people that you'll find in it. The teacher finds that eating and drinking and making merry are best when they're shared. What the writer of Ecclesiastes is after is communion. He finds that communion in eating, drinking, and making merry. His pursuit of money did not bring any extra joy or extra communion, and thus he found that the energy he spent in that pursuit was meaningless. The rich man in our parable is not yet seen through to the other side of his pursuit. He has his riches, and he goes to great lengths to preserve them. All the while thinking that with this, now I can finally relax. Now I can just eat and drink and I can be merry. And yet none of that bounty is shared. At no point in this parable does the rich man consider his neighbors or even God. And it's for this reason that this man is called a fool. This chapter of Luke began with Jesus telling his disciples that there's no need to fear an enemy. And after he tells this parable, he goes on to spell out that for very similar reasons, they do not even need to fear when they don't know where the next meal is coming from. Consider the ravens, Jesus says. They don't sow 
or reap. They don't keep barns and storehouses, and yet they are fed. Or if you don't know how you're going to clothe yourselves, consider the flowers. This is how God dresses the very grass of the fields. And how much more are you than grass? How much more are you than a raven? Don't seek after these simple things, but seek the kingdom, Jesus says. Seek the kingdom, and the kingdom will find you. And here's something about the kingdom. A few minutes ago, I mentioned that the writer of Ecclesiastes only finds meaning in fearing God and keeping the commandments. The commandments are at least in part instruction on how we might seek and find and live in the kingdom. And here's a strange question, but I promise you it relates. Have you ever wondered why you see those long, strange, curly wisps of hair at the sideburns of an Orthodox Jew? The answer is in Leviticus 19. There's a commandment in Leviticus 19 that says, Do not cut the corners of your beard. And so the faithful Jewish don't cut the the corners of their beard. But of course, like all of us, like we're trying to do today, they want to know what the meaning is behind this. The rabbi saw that it also in Leviticus 19, there's a commandment that says, do not reap your fields in the corners. Believe the corners that the poor and the immigrants might glean and find a meal. So those curly sideburns are worn Because the Jews want to remind themselves that they're to live generously. This is also, by the way, Leviticus 19 is where we find the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. On this picture blown up on the wall here, you see what the farmlands of Israel look like today. On either side is a storehouse, a silo, where they might have kept grain or something like that. But in the middle, you see these fields, and there's different fields with different plants, and you can see that they're kind of small. This is pretty much exactly what it would have looked like about 2,000 years ago when Jesus was walking these lands. You can see that the, the way that these fields are made, there's a lot of corners A lot of corners means that there's a lot of fruit left behind. My father-in-law has uh, spent his life in farming. And one of the things that I've learned from him is that even with all of our modern technology, farming is a lot of work. And on top of the work, the farmer's dependent on weather patterns that they have no chance of controlling. And so the faithful Jew in the time of Jesus, with that small plot of land, has a command that tells him that if he wants to be faithful, he has to leave some of the corner of that field. He has to leave what he's shed blood, sweat, and tears for so that somebody that has not spent any of the time or effort might be able to eat. Jesus can tell the disciples that they don't have to worry about their next meal because they live in the middle of a place that has people oriented towards the kingdom. They know that they will find a corner uncut. 
as they walked around these farmlands, they could see where a faithful man or where a faithful family lived. They could see whether or not a family had left large corners full of fruit or whether that farmer left a small corner with nothing but scraps. And my bet is, were the man in this parable real, he probably would have pretty small corners. Ultimately, I think that Jesus, in telling this parable, is trying to convey the same message as the teacher of Ecclesiastes. Pursuits of wealth, possessions, are meaningless. Only devotion to the divine brings meaning to life. Recognizing the divine and seeking after the kingdom are paramount to a life of faith. Worry and fear will devour your life. Live generously. We eat and we drink and we celebrate with our community because these are the actions that we do and when we do them we find and we share the divine. The teacher concludes his writing with this one essential piece of advice. Remember your creator. Remember your creator and what you pursue. Remember your creator and what you share. Remember your creator as you go through each part of your day. In work, in rest, in eating and drinking and enjoying a life with your friends and your family. Remember your creator. Please pray with me. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives us life, who sustains us, and who brings us to this very moment. We thank you, Father, for the many gifts you've given us. If they're riches and if they're possessions, we thank you for those. But we ask you, Father, to help us, to guide us, to teach us what it is to have those things and to remember you. To remember our neighbor what it means to keep the corners of our own fields uncut. We bless you, Father, for who you are and who you've made us to be. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.